Last night, our high school students got back from a trip down to Ridgehaven Camp, and uh, it's the PCA camp, which I am a member of as a pastor. It's a denomination I'm in. And uh, I heard from my daughter, Hannah, last night, who went, and also from Michael, who accompanied them on the trip. I'm not sure why Michael went, because she didn't stay at the camp, but I assume that uh, it had something to do with the crumbs. And uh, again, I don't understand it, but fathers usually don't understand it when their daughters go off with strange men. I hear Jay laughing. Somebody here has daughters who have already married. Um, Anyhow, all of you need to hear about this trip. Um, It was a wonderful trip, and I don't know when they're going to give you a report. I'd love to be able to do it this morning, but we're under real discipline, or I should say I'm under real discipline, although you'll see this morning whether I actually am under real discipline. Um, We have to end at 12, we have communion, and we have to be out of here by 12.30, and it takes half an hour to break down. So the minute this service is over, you're going to feel intensity. And uh, it's not going to be easy to hang out because all the chairs are going to be, well, I don't know about that, but things are going to be knocked down. Would all of you please not falter in being faithful to help physically, especially those of you who are men? Um, It's a lot of work, and I can't tell you how grateful I am for all of you. I've been seeing more people involved in the work of the church in the last week or two than I've ever seen before at any of my churches, and I'm just so grateful for it. And, uh, I mean, just it's, it's wonderful how responsible uh, so many of you have been. This morning, um, I want to talk to you again about, I'm going to call it the Great Commission, but I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts 1, 8 to 11 again. You remember that two weeks ago, we were studying the kingdom of God, and we learned that Jesus continually taught about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a concept that the conservative part of the Christian church has given over to liberals. Liberals talk about the kingdom of God because uh, generally liberals see the important task of the church calling us to social righteousness and justice. And conservatives tend to not care about politics and economic uh, justice and to pray the sinner's prayer, and and liberals tend to care very much about bringing in the kingdom here on earth and not to be as concerned and often to deny the substitutionary atonement. And um, so we as conservative Christians, biblical Christians, uh, need to recognize that the kingdom of God is not a liberal concept. It's a conservative concept. But the kingdom of God is not what um, liberal Christians say it is. It is not bringing in... Uh, the kingdom of God here on earth, unless what you mean by that is a spiritual kingdom. And so last week we saw that the disciples and all the Jews were constantly seeing Jesus as being the next King David who would whoop up on the Romans, who would finally be the, the, the true, the genuine article in these messianic figures who came periodically for a few hundred years of the Jewish uh, life Uh, And they were frustrated. Jesus' own family was frustrated that he would not use the unbelievable power he had. He raised men from the dead. He stilled 
uh, horrible storms. He, he brought sight to the blind, those who had been blind from birth. It was obvious that there was no power in heaven and earth that he didn't have. And so to them it was obvious that what he should do with the power was to bring in the kingdom of God here on earth, and namely the Jewish kingdom. And Jesus didn't do it. And when he was asked, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so, yes, we believe in the kingdom of God. We believe that it is God's purpose for us to bring. We know that Jesus began his preaching by saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, if we are no longer believing that the way we bring in the kingdom of God, serving under Jesus Christ, is for us to start an army and for us to go out and kill people, and there are many religions that believe that that's the way to bring in the, the, the kingdom of their God, but we don't believe that, all right? Then the question is, is the kingdom come spontaneously, and does it come without work? And here you get at the issue of what you believe the doctrine of the church is. And I have to stop and tell you, I love worshiping here. <laughs> oh, man. Finally, I can see your faces again because you're much closer to me and we're sort of on the same level. So I love this room. I'm sorry. Those of you that grieve over the loss of the last one, uh, I don't share your opinion. <laughs> this is intimate from up here and I love it. Anyhow, I... Um, as we think about the kingdom of God, we get at the issue of what we believe the church is. Now, many people believe that the church is a place of uh, intimacy, fellowship. It's a home for Christians. I won't deny that, but that's only part of what the church is. Other people will say, well, it's not so much a home for Christians as it is a hospital for wounded Christians. And again, I'm not going to deny this. The church is to be a hospital where those of us who are sinners are welcome and are, have our wounds bound up. And I start with sin. The primary wound we all have is our own sin and the sin of those we live among. And during the week, it's very difficult sometimes to live with a sinner. It's hard to live with a proud woman and a proud man. It's hard to live with disobedient children. It's hard to live with our own unguarded tongues. It's hard to live with theft. It's hard to live in a culture where there are images of naked women everywhere, all right? We come into the church, and the church calls us to the holiness of God and assures us that our sins are under the blood. Otherwise, none of us could come to this table this morning. We could sit and listen to the preaching of the Word and feel more guilt, but we couldn't come to the table because we'd be convinced that our guilt made us unable to stand before Christ. So, yes, it is a home. Yes, it is a hospital, primarily for those of us who have fallen into sin and have been hurt by others' sin. But it's much more than that. The church, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what's the point of that? That's not a statement that God's going to protect the church so that the church can always live in a fortress mentality and never have its walls breached. You understand? When God says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, he's telling us that the church is not just defensive, but offensive. After all, if we're just content to come into a church where we're reassured that we're okay in the blood of Jesus, and then we can go off and live a humdrum life, why would the forces of hell ever try to prevail against us? 
And so when we have churches where nobody's ever scandalized by them, you know it's not a true church. When you have Christians who never offend anybody, you know you don't have true Christians. When you have preaching which never makes people angry, you know you don't have true preaching. And the reason is that when Jesus promises that the gates of hell will never prevail against us, this should be a sweet promise. Why? Because we should be placing our entire lives on the line for the sake of the gospel. Now, I ask you, take at this moment, take stock of yourself and ask yourself, what is your doctrine of the church? What's your doctrine of the kingdom of God? What is your doctrine of the defensive forces and angels of heaven protecting you? Does it have any utility in your life? You understand the question, right? Does it help you? Does it encourage you and comfort you that God says that he's protecting you as a member of the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against you? Don't just personalize this because that statement was made about the corporate church. Yes, Satan is roaming like a devouring lion seeking whom he may devour, so you need personal protection. But what about us as a church? Jesus has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Take stock in your life of the risk. All right? I have to watch out here. Um, if you were to say, if somebody were to ask you, where is the risk in your life, what would you say? Because where the risk is, that's where you want protection. All right? So where is the risk? I look at a mother, and the risk is to her children, isn't it? What about those of you who are fathers and men? Where is the risk in your life? Those of you who are single women, where is the risk? In other words... How many risks have you taken because you are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many risks have you taken? How many times this last week have you seen God's protection of you when you have been a martyrus, a witness in Greek? Let's read Acts chapter 1 together, beginning with verse 8. Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. 7. Jesus. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power for what? Jesus goes on and says, And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, I want to ask three questions. Number one, what is the work Jesus wants us to do? Number two, where is the work to be done? And number three, when will the work be completed or finished? Now, we've gone over this two weeks ago somewhat, but to return to these themes, what, where, and when. You remember that the disciples asked Jesus to tell them all the details of his second coming. And you remember that Jesus said, it is not for me to tell you these things. It is not for you to know times or epics. He pointed to his father and he said, that's under my father's jurisdiction. They couldn't know the exact timing, but they had a job to do until then. And his last words to his disciples here are an explanation of that job he was assigning to them. So what's the job? Well, the job Jesus gave to his disciples And the job that Jesus has given to us today is recorded in verse 8. You shall be my witnesses 
All right. Now, as we saw last week, this word witness is a very interesting word. It's the same word that our word in English, martyr, comes from. The Greek word is martyrus, or martus, excuse me. It has to do with testifying or, and I didn't mention this before, but giving evidence. I once had an accident with an IU bus. And the IU bus, um, I was in front of it at a light, and when the light turned green, it started up and hit me. And it would have been easy to think that it was my fault, but there was a man in a car ahead of me, and I don't know how, but he was watching his rearview mirror, and he saw what happened. And that man, and it was at the intersection where you cross from the mall where... Uh, uh, um, Oh, I don't know. My mind goes blank. I say Noodle Town, but there's more better known things on each side of it. The Japanese Steakhouse and the, the place that has free... Panera. Yes, Panera. If you go from that place across to College Mall, it's that intersection. So it's busy and it, it, it costs this man. But he got out of his car, he came back to me, and he said, I am a witness, here is my contact information, and I am happy to serve you. And so I got paid by IU. <laughs> now, that man's a witness, and it did cost him, didn't it? I mean, you know, these things can go to court. Um, he was inconvenienced. It was raining cats and dogs. Um, but he served as my witness. And if you think about uh, if it had gone to court, he would have stood up and he would have said, I testify that this man was in the right in how he was driving his car. Now, Think of the disciples. When Jesus was under pressure, went into a trial, was arrested, went into a trial, and then was crucified, look at the apostles. Were they witnesses? Now, all of them abandoned him. You see one or the other of them showing up every now and then, but Peter symbolizes all the apostles. He, he denied. He was so frightened that he denied our Lord three times. All right? So that's the reality. Now, what happens after the crucifixion? Well, then they see Jesus raised from the dead, and this gives them another hint of the power of God through this man who was actually God. All right? And that power is unbelievable. And those disciples were given the Great Commission, and then what happened to them? What happened is, John, would you come up, please? Um, when I was in high school, my father one year gave me my most treasured gift he ever gave me. Thank you, dear brother. And this is the gift. So what is it? It says on the back, Timothy from Dad, Christmas 1970. Well, it's horseshoe nails and horseshoeing nails. Some of them have fallen out and fallen apart, but this should give you a hint. This one right here and this one here. Who is this? Huh? This is Peter. And who is this? This is you. Oh, no, I didn't merely mean that. Who is this? This is Judas. All right? He loved money, didn't he? These are the disciples. Church tradition tells us that they all died martyrs' deaths except Judas. And we know that Peter died what? He died upside down crucified upside down because he would not take on himself being crucified in the same way as his Lord. He was not worthy of that. So he had them crucify him upside down. 
Now, why would a father give this to his son? I'll give you a hint. He expects me to be one of these. And he was telling me as a senior in high school that if I'm going to use my life to build my kingdom and not the kingdom of God, that basically I'm not worthy of my father or our father. You understand that? This is a message to his son that not only has God called me to be a witness, but that he is my father holds me accountable to do as the disciples have done. Why did Jesus say to the disciples, you shall receive power? It means that they had not yet received the Holy Spirit and his power. But when they received the Holy Spirit and his power, what happened? They went everywhere and they preached the gospel. And it didn't matter what people did to them. They wouldn't shut up. And it's a wonderful story. It's one of the uh, clearest uh, logical proofs of the resurrection. You can't see that kind of transformation coming except in the context of Jesus being raised from the dead. And Chuck Colson has written an excellent article on that. Um, So Jesus gives us a command. Now, the first aspect of that command is the job. The job is we're to be witnesses. What does it mean to be a witness? This is what it means to be a witness. And you might not have the privilege of giving your physical life for the Lord. The privilege. But you certainly have the privilege every day of giving up your life, your reputation, your money for the Lord. All right? Now, the second question we want to ask ourselves is this. Where is the work to be done? If you look at the text, the text says... You shall be my witnesses after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, we all know that in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and preached a sermon and many thousands were converted that day. That was when the Holy Spirit came on them at Pentecost. But what about Judea and Samaria? Well, persecution started and they began to go out. All right. And then persecution came and various things happened. David uh, Canfield, one of our elders, reminded me this two weeks ago that it wasn't just persecution, that actually Antioch did send out missionaries. So uh, the missionary movement is modern that started uh, a couple centuries ago. But through a variety of circumstances, they didn't just stay in Jerusalem uh, in, in their comfortable homes in a Jewish context, but they were persecuted and they went out. They were sent by the church and they went out and they went across the world and they preached the gospel. Uh, in the ancient Roman Empire, Paul, there were a few places he, wa- he didn't go. And what he didn't go physically, he sent letters. And so Judea, excuse me, Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, which was the close outlying area, sort of the suburbs or the state area, And then to the uttermost parts of the earth, they went out. Why did they do it? Because Jesus had commanded it. This was what the Holy Spirit was sent for. The Holy Spirit wasn't sent just to keep them safe in Jerusalem when they're persecuted. The Holy Spirit was sent to bring them power, to be a comforter, and to send them out to what? To obey the command that Jesus had given them. Now, here's the question. How do you obey the command that Jesus gave them? Some people, being theologically sophisticated, look at me and say, well, that was a call that was given to the apostles. 
It wasn't given to the members of the church. Now, those of you who have always taken this as a verse directly to you need to understand that it is true that there was a sense in which the apostles were given this command in a way that the members of the church were not. The apostolic office was an office. Uh, You see Paul defending himself as having this office in in Corinthians. And so there is a sense in which the church recognizes gifting for preaching the gospel all over the world and sets apart certain men, not women, to that calling. But, of course, the minute that man gets a calling, his wife does too. When we sent off David and Terry Ann, Terry Ann shares the calling, being one with her husband, of going to Zambia and proclaiming the gospel and building up the church. Nevertheless, even though this first hammer of the command goes to the apostles, All of us are called to be witnesses. And if I were to ask you where that's taught in Scripture, you would rightfully start right at this text. This is not a text just given to individuals. It's a text given to the church. And there are many places in Scripture where it says that you are an agent of reconciliation, that you are to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you, that you are not to be ashamed of the gospel, because if you are ashamed of it, then... Jesus Christ and his Father will be ashamed of you when you stand before the judgment seat. And all these things only make sense in the context of you fulfilling the command to go into all the world and preach the gospel also. There is a preaching which comes from the lips of a pastor who's set apart by the laying on of hands, ordained to the calling. There is a preaching that goes on when you speak up wherever you go in your life. And there's a preaching that goes on when people watch you at your work, at your study, Uh, In your care for the children, there is a preaching that goes on when your children go out into the world and people look at the character of your children. They see the character of your marriage. They see the character of their mothers and fathers. And so you are called to this. And again, I come back to you and I say, how are you fulfilling the Great Commission? Now, I want to remind you, the Great Commission is not simply me as an officer of the church preaching the gospel. And if you think about it, one of the ways we know that is that my work isn't even done when I get out of the pulpit. I have to come to you, to your home, day and night with tears, just as the Apostle Paul said he did it in Acts 20. He said about the church in Ephesus, you remember how I was when I was among you. I never stopped warning you day and night with tears. In other words, he violated their homes. He came in, and even when their husbands had given up on them, Paul came in and talked to the wife. Okay? And I often preach on that text, and I ask churches, when it's often at ordinations and installations, I say, how many of you really want a pastor like that? How many of you, if I were to say to you, here's a man who will never stop warning you day and night with tears, house to house, it says in Acts, he went to their homes, house to house, how many of you want a pastor like that? You know? Well, you say you do. But I've never come to your house yet. (laughs) After I come, then we'll see. All right? So, clearly, it's not enough for me to get up publicly and preach the gospel. I need to do it house to house, day and night, with tears. So, no, it's not just limited to preaching the gospel. But it's also not limited to me. Why? Because the Bible says, if you look at Matthew 28, the very end of Matthew 28, the last chapter of uh, the Gospel of Matthew... You'll see another account of the Great Commission given to to the the church. 
And here it says in verse 16, that the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. So much for those who deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What a statement. All authority. You don't need to have a military campaign when the one that you serve has declared as God that all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth. All right? In other words, we know the end of the story. Jesus Christ will be Lord of all. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, given his authority, you go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is the answer to oneness Pentecostals. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't baptize into the name of Jesus only. All right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? We often leave this verse off. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Rita used to explain to me that she hated flying. And she said that the reason she hated, this was an older woman uh, who died a couple of years ago, 86 years old, and a dear friend, the mother of uh, a woman that's here with us today visiting. And uh, Rita used to make a joke about how she hated flying because the, the biblical promise, she said, is, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. <laughs> um, so I never read this without thinking of Rita. Planes are high. Rita wanted to stay low. Now, think of the command in Acts uh, to go into all the world, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, Think of the command here, all authority in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of what? All the nations. But what? notice what it says. It says make disciples. And then later it says teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. And this is, again is the failing of conservative biblical churches. What we want to do is show the Jesus film in one big blitz. All right. We go into a village. We get 3,000 people to come. They watch the Jesus film. We're able to announce that there were 5,000 conversions to Jesus Christ. 3,000 people present, but 5,000 conversions, you know. And, uh, and then we leave. But that's not evangelism. Evangelism is obeying all of the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is not just the proclamation of the substitutionary atonement. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. That's the center of the Gospel. But the Gospel extends to making disciples... And it extends to teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Regularly, I speak with our missionaries and I ask them whether when they're faithful in their missions work, are they teaching the biblical commands about manhood and womanhood? And this last week in talking to Brian and Vivian Daub, Brian was saying to me, now you're not saying that I should neglect the gospel for the sake of that doctrine. Brian and Vivian very much agree and love this doctrine of scripture about manhood and womanhood. But it was a good question he was asking. Is this a higher priority than the gospel? And my answer is, this is part of the gospel. It is impossible to separate the teaching and the doctrine of Jesus from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, when he gave us the Great Commission, said, make disciples. And you know a disciple isn't somebody that's prayed a sinner's prayer and then returned 
to certain parts of the country that I'll not name, but parts where you know people aren't there to be godly usually. All right? In other words, if you're a disciple, you give yourself to Jesus Christ, and then your entire life is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're not a disciple. Does that make sense? And so we as a church need to be committed to not simply handing out the four spiritual laws, getting people to pray the sinner's prayer, and then abandoning them. This is not the gospel. The gospel is taking the commission that our commanding officer has given us and obeying it. You cannot obey that commission by showing the Jesus film and leaving the village, giving out tracts, and leaving people behind. Now, what you can do is you can preach the gospel and then leave having delegated to other elders who are appointed in every city the task of making sure that the discipleship happens. It says in Acts that they appointed elders in every city. And so, therefore, part of the gospel is the church. You can't have individualist Christians who are, like, disconnected and feeling real cosmic about their spirituality. You can't have it. Because Jesus, our commanding officer, said, make disciples teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And so our missionaries are examined as to their faithfulness, particularly at the points where we hate Jesus' teaching. All right? That's where we ask them if they're being faithful, because that's the place they're going to be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. You say, it's not the gospel. I say, yes, it is good news to people raised in sexual decadence to hear that God has a plan for men and women. Is that not good news? And didn't it come from God? And aren't we under the lordship of Jesus Christ? So we never soft sell the parts of Scripture our culture hates because it's those parts our culture most needs. But it never displaces the center of the cross. And nobody's going to be willing to obey the commands of manhood and womanhood until what? Until they have given their lives to Jesus Christ. But we're not content for them simply to pray the sinner's prayer. We bring them in the church. We say, here is the body of Christ. And then we love them. And when they're timid and fearful that this husband of theirs is going to be absolutely unbelievably difficult to live with if they begin to submit to him, we say, you know, my husband is a bit difficult also. And if they have a wife who never uh, gives into their decisions and they're just tired from trying to lead their home and discipline their children because she fights them, we say, you know, I've had those difficulties also with my wife. And you see, this is why God says that we are to make disciples and that we're to teach them to obey everything he commands. It's because God is pleased to build a flock, to have a household. He's pleased to have mothers of the household, fathers of the household. He's pleased to have us live together in love. And as we live together in love, we begin to walk by faith. And we take those hard walls of our lives and we bash them down and we're sanctified. And as we're sanctified, we don't become more worthy of heaven, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. As we're sanctified, we become more like our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is always the blood of Jesus Christ that is our standing before God. It is never those good works that God is pleased to accomplish in us through the church and through the power of his Holy Spirit working in the church.
Now let me ask you, where's the risk in your life? Where are you giving yourself to speaking to other men and women of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where do you speak to them of the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sins? When you look at the people that you love, that you know, that you study with, do you see people who are unreconciled to their mothers, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, their husbands and their wives? Do you see people who are suffering under a burden of sin, are deadening it through alcohol, through drugs, through fishing? All right. Do you see the reality of their souls or are you content to live on a superficial level with your loved ones? In other words, are you a witness? Give yourself to being a witness. I love being in this building because it takes away a lot of our security. And I have seen buildings swallow churches spiritually. Buildings are seductive. They make you feel that you have something when you don't, often when you don't. Imagine some of the churches in town and the beautiful edifice. If you've ever driven north on Meridian Street in Indianapolis, you look at the unbelievable edifices those churches have. And some of them I know. Uh, the spiritual reality is belied by the edifice. The edifice looks great, but the spiritual reality of their commitment to Jesus Christ is just horrible. And so I like being here because now we see the church. There's an old little ditty that I wish we sang sometimes. It goes like this. It goes, I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. All of God's children all around the world. Yes. We're the church. I think that's it. Together. You know, it's not sophisticated. It's like the early hymns of the Reformation. That was a dig. (laughs) All right. Um, But that's the truth. We are the church. We're the church here in a public high school or grade school. So as you go out this week, I want to know, are you going to commit yourself to inviting people to come and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached. Now, if you don't, it's not because you don't have people to invite. It's because you're ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, no, it's because I'm a sinner and I couldn't ever talk to them about it because I'm not good enough yet. And I tell you, and I'll end with this, uh, when I went to Northern Illinois University for a year, uh, I was... I was... I was not honoring to the Lord. And I lived in an apartment with a man that I fell in love with. Uh, His name was Paul Cote, and we just immediately had the closest, like, Jonathan uh, David relationship. It was delightful to be around him. He wasn't a believer. He was getting a master's in public administration. And one day I sat Paul down after we'd been together about nine months, And I said to Paul, and by the way, it was not a sexual relationship. Uh, I refuse to give in to this world the language that I want to use to describe my relationships with other men. (laughs) I loved Paul. He loved me. We lived in love. Nevertheless, one day I sat down with him. I said, Paul, I am a terrible witness to Jesus Christ, but I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is 
the Lord of the universe and that his gospel is true, even though I am unfaithful to it. And Paul, you need to trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, a short time after that, Paul was out on the front porch of our apartment house and he opened a Bible and he read the Sermon on the Mount. And as he read the Sermon on the Mount, he became a Christian. And he's a strong believer. He's an elder in his church today, a Baptist church. Um, and he loves the Lord. His wife loves the Lord. His children love, his child loves the Lord. And don't worry about your sin. Ask forgiveness. Go to those, including unbelievers, who you've sinned against and ask their forgiveness. But don't be ashamed of the gospel. Um, Jesus ends by saying that uh, he will return. The theme is all through Scripture, and the book of Revelation teaches it. And this is when your work is done. And when he returns, he says he'll return like a thief in the night. If he returned in an hour, would you feel that you had done him right? Would you, with good conscience, be able to stand in front of him and say, I have been your witness? Who can you name who is here today and who has trusted Jesus Christ because of your witness? Who? Who have you put your life and your home and your convenience on the line because you love them and you love your Lord? Who? That's the question I want you to go from this morning. If I could have the elders to come, please.